0: Understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? what connects us, and what divides us. We'll dive into all of that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of China Field Notes. I'm Scott Kennedy, and I am delighted today to be joined by one of the most interesting scholars in all of China, Xie Tao. I'm going to introduce Xie Tao in just a a minute and then we're going to have a fantastic conversation about American politics and American society today. Xie Tao is professor and dean of the School of International Relations and Diplomacy at Beijing Foreign Studies University. He holds a PhD in political science from the best university in all of the United States, Northwestern University, and I say that because my oldest son went to Northwestern University. And that is a total coincidence here. He has done an amazing amount of research on the U.S. Congress, American elections, public opinion, and the Sino-American relationship. He's published in all leading journals on these topics, including uh, American Politics Research, the Journal of Contemporary China, leading journals in China. And he has written some excellent books, including U.S.-China Relations China Policy on Capitol Hill, which is published by Rutledge in 2009. And he has received a variety of different grants, including from the National Social Science Fund of China. He's published many, many pieces on China, in China, and in international media outlets. And I've known a lot of Chinese scholars who are experts in U.S. China relations. Shia Tao is at the top of the list of those scholars who are experts in American politics. What's going on inside the United States, and he knows more about American politics than I do. And because I'm a China expert, I'm not a America's expert. As we're going to see in this conversation, he is going to be leading the way. So, Shia Tao, welcome to this edition of China
1: Field Notes. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for inviting me. It's a real delight and uh, an honor to be here with you on your special program.
0: Well, usually on this program, we talk with Chinese or long-term foreign residents of China about China. But we're going to turn things around today to talk about Chinese perspectives about American politics. And we're going to try and do this in as nonpartisan a way as possible. But I think it's really important valuable for Americans to get a sense of how do Chinese, especially those who really work on and follow the United States, how are they looking at developments in the United States? And particularly since you do field work and you travel around the United States, you've probably been to more places in the U.S. than myself or many of the people listening to this recording. So I got a variety of questions, and I know that you've just recently been here and we're out in Iowa. We're going to get to that. But before we talk about your time in Iowa and getting to Iowa, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in American politics in the United States in the first place.
1: Scott, that's a long story. I think the key reason is because somehow I chose to study English as my undergraduate college major. Now the second question you would ask, why were you interested in studying English? I would say somehow I was lucky during high school that we had an English teacher who was very strict with me, the only student. So every morning, When we had the morning recitation session, he would just uh, walk over to my desk and say, hey, Xie you need to memorize all this text by heart. And then uh, when we come back and I would uh, check on your recitation. So he was really the one that pushed me to learn English very hard. And then I got interested in English. I choose to study English for four years during my undergraduate college. And then when I was choosing my master's degree program, I chose to study American studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. You know, at that time, there were quite a few faculty, but they are very senior at that time. And some of them specialized in American education. Some of them went to Yale as a Fulbright scholar studying American history. Some studied American culture, but somehow I was very interested in American history. I read a lot of books by, for example, Henry Nash Smith and Daniel Borstein by um, Richard Hofstadter. So at that time, that was uh, about 1998 to 2001. So I said, you know, I want to study more about America. But what did I choose to study? So when I was applying to graduate school, I look at the uh, departments. I feel like I'm not a historian, but I'm interested in American politics. And so eventually I decided to apply to dep- uh, political science departments in the United States and to focus on American politics. So that's how I started as an English major and ended up as a political scientist who specializes in American politics. And, and one thing I want to tell you, Scott, is that when I was a student at Northwestern, where well, I'd go to a Midwest political science annual meeting, APSA, And I would find that I was probably the only Chinese who studied American politics. Today, of course, there are more. I wouldn't say far more, but there are a couple more Chinese students who choose to go to America and study American students. And by the way, in full disclosure, I'm very proud of this fact that almost each and every one of them was my student. Well, you were a good student Uh, that strict original teacher
0: who taught you English, they did a good job and you were a good student. You've learned learned a lot. But there's another aspect of your research or interest that I'm curious about because it's one that I share and that is interest in doing field work. Political scientists can get data lots of different ways. You can download data. You can have someone do a formal survey for you. You can read books and articles. You like to get out in the field and go, Talk to people and interview people, and not everyone likes to do that. W- why do you enjoy doing field research and, and traveling?
1: I used to do a lot of research relying on secondhand data, like you said, in the research uh, done by other people, like surveys, you know, statistics released by U.S. Census Bureau. But I feel like you know, to study American politics, you need to go to America. And to feel the heartbeat of America, the pulse of America. It's just like, I always admired Alex de Tocqueville. I read the book, you know, American Democracy quite a few times. Then that became a classic precisely because he traveled America and he observed America. Even though many of his observations to use today's scientific uh, standards are very subjective. They are very haphazard. They are unsystematic, but his insights about American society, like Americans' habit of associating with each other, Americans' self-government, all this, you know, they are still as true as they are when he was writing the book. So I feel like it's important. I think, you know, Scott, you know, you have done a far better job than I did in coming over to China and talking to Chinese people, Chinese scholars, and Chinese students to get a real sense of what is going on. In my country,
0: well, I think we have the same feeling that you need to see it, talk to people, and doing so in person really helps. I don't know; there are a lot of American China experts who who do field work. I think many do it better than me. I feel like I still don't get enough time in China, particularly since the, the pandemic, of course. Which brings us to the next topic, which is you were just in the United States, and you were here to observe the Iowa caucuses and so I want to I'm really interested in in what you saw and learned when you were in Iowa but I also understand that when you landed you and your students when you landed at O'Hare in Chicago you were taken aside and questioned for a really long time so
1: could you just tell us what happened and and what impression it left you with of course I was uh, totally unprepared for this I studied in Chicago for six years. I thought like I would get a very warm welcome in Chicago, but turned out this would be my first experience of being questioned for nearly three hours by a U.S. immigration officer. And that was a very unpleasant, to say the least, especially after 13 hours of flight from Seoul to Chicago. You are tired, and you want to get out of the airport. And I had a full day of activities at Northwestern, right? But to be fair to the officer who questioned me throughout the whole process, he was never—I would say—even unfriendly or intimidating. I would say he was—he he was a nice guy. I think he was just, uh, you know, enforcing some of these orders. Maybe I asked him before I left. I said, "Why was I selected?" He said because you were leading a group of Chinese students. And uh, you combine this with this most recent reports uh, that at Washington Dallas International Airport, a lot of Chinese students were also questioned and some of them were even deported back to China. So I felt like right now in the United States, at least at the DHS, there is this uh, heightened worry or concern about Chinese students coming over to America. And you know the story that the Chinese students were somehow labeled as spies and agents for the Chinese government. And so that's why I did an interview with uh, CGTN, China's uh, CCTV English News. And at the end of my interview, I called on American law enforcement officials, like, you know, stop doing this. I said the students of China, they come to America to study. They are friends of America. Now, imagine if, Scott, you were given this kind of a treatment at Beijing International Airport, and that would be causing a diplomatic incident between the two countries. And I certainly hope that this would not happen again, not just to me, but also to some other Chinese scholars. So I think that's the only unpleasant episode during my 13-day tour of the United States. After that, you know, we had a plenty, you know, smooth a trip in Iowa, San Francisco, Atlanta. I would want to put this just behind me and I want to look ahead at the US-China relationship and my next trip to the United States.
0: Well thanks for sharing that with us and thanks for your, I would say, far-sighted interpretation of everything. I do think, you know, as someone who is trying to encourage the rebuilding of U.S.-China scholarly connectivity, and does a lot of field work himself. In general, we want governments to follow rules. We want them to be transparent. If they've got standards about who's supposed to come in or who who's not, you know, the best way to make that decision is at the time you decide on whether someone should get a visa, not when they arrive. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with you, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, obviously, you know, uh, there have been some Americans who have faced some difficulties when they've traveled to China or folks of other nationalities, and those have, those cases have also been raised. There is a, a perception, and maybe it's also a reality, that that in the United States, we're a rule of law country and, you know, nothing should be done except in, in the bounds of the rules. But it would, I, I do think what we need is more clarity. So you should never be surprised when you arrive at the United States of what kind of welcome you're going to get because we want to encourage openness as as much as we can, and at least predictability for everybody. So you got through the airport, you then made your way to Iowa. Again, this is a nonpartisan program. I know it was a Republican caucuses, but really curious, you know, what was your plan for observing? What are
1: some of the things that you, you came away with? Scott, you know, I study American politics, but I've never been to any of these uh, presidential primaries or caucuses, even when I was a student at Northwestern. So I thought to myself, I need to go there and observe at least once in a lifetime. And then this year's uh, election, you know, is very, very special. You have a former president running against uh, somebody who used to be the vice president. And then you had... You put this e- election in the background of the 2021 January 6th riots. You have all this uh, discussion about coming political violence, America divide. And so I thought like, you know, this is a really important election. I need to go there and observe with my own eyes the uh, three Republican candidates in Iowa. What do they say? How do they send their message to their voters? How do the people respond to their messaging, etc.? That's why I decided to go there. And then I was lucky because my university launched a, a new uh, initiative called BFSU Going Global. And so the university encourages students to travel abroad for a study tour, and they could be funded for as up to 5,000 RMB, or even I think the highest is 10,000 RMB, even though it's little money, but it's an, a symbol of uh, encouragement and to, for students to go abroad, to uh, expand your horizon. So I decided to take six students out of uh, more than 70 applicants. So we started from Chicago. I have to tell you, even now, when I look back, this is one of the scariest moments in my life because by the time we started from Chicago, it was already around 4 o'clock in the afternoon due to delay at O'Hare. And then in the Midwest we had a blizzard on January 12th. And so it was... Exactly damn cold. It's brutal cold. It's minus 29 degrees, I think, in the Celsius. <laughs> and then the yeah. roads, yeah, I was worried that we may not uh, drive all the way to Iowa. But then we, when we got on the highway, we found like the roads were cleared very good. But you had piles of snow on the roadside. And you almost like every two minutes, you see a car or this uh, 18-wheeler truck buried in the snow. And then you could uh, feel like the winds were so strong, it was uh, shaking up the car, the big van that we were traveling in. It took us like seven and a half hours to get from Chicago to Des Moines, whereas this uh, usually, under normal conditions, it would take about five hours. And so I was really scared, like, you know, our car could flip on the highway and when we had a terrible accident, right? And so fortunately, we made it to Iowa. And so this is a really a, a once-in-a-life experience, and, and I'm glad that I did it. Wow. Yeah, so you might be thinking, I might as well go back to the library or download
0: data. <laughs> but you, 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 you're here to tell the story. So tell us what happened once you got
1: to Iowa. Oh, once I got to Iowa the next morning, we woke up pretty early. We started off at about 8 o'clock because Donald Trump had a rally scheduled at 12 o'clock in the new one. So we got to the uh, student center on the campus of Simpson College. There were already about like 40 people waiting in the brutal cold weather. So we joined the uh, long queue and we waited outside for about 40 minutes and we got in. And then we waited another two and a half hours before Donald Trump got into the stadium. I have to say that even now I look back, one is that you got to be on the spot to feel how excited that Donald Trump supporters were, that kind of uh, enthusiasm, uh, that kind of uh, loyalty, intensity of their support. So like, you know, people keep chanting like USA, USA. Uh, uh, There's a one singer who came on the stage before Donald Trump arrived to sing American national anthem. And then there were people who uh, led the uh, crowd in prayer. And then there were, you see all this, I would characterize as this, American nationalism or patriotism, they would call this a patriotism, patriotism on full display at Donald Trump's rally. And of course, uh, there were a uh, couple of uh, hecklers, you know, people who were protesting, and they pulled out a banner saying, Donald Trump, climate criminal. And they were of course escorted away outside the rally ground. And but then the people keep shouting, USA, USA. So you feel like this is uh, amazing. And then later, before we left the stadium, we asked how many people attended. We were told that there were about 800 people who showed up on that uh, especially cold day in Iowa. So that's Donald Trump's rally. We went there. And so after that, I saw like, you know, there is no way that the other two candidates, DeSantis and Haley, would beat Donald Trump. Donald Trump is absolutely the dominant figure in the GOP.
0: Wow. So... That's really quite a story. And so that was during the day. You you went to his rally during the day. The caucuses are held in the evening all over the state. Did you get a chance to get near any of the caucus sites or
1: talk to any of the people who participated in them? Oh, yeah. Scott, after Donald Trump's rally, we went to two rallies by uh, each of the other two candidates, Ron DeSantis and uh, Nikki Haley. I have to say... Their rally in terms of their, for example, rally site size, how many people, the size of the crowd, you compare this with Donald Trump. Again, uh, there's no mistake that Donald Trump was going to win the election in Iowa. And now you ask me about the caucus. Yes, we did go to the caucuses in the evening. We went to a site at a Hilton Hotel lobby. And so it was uh, two precincts in West Des Moines. Uh, we somehow managed to go in there. I was concerned because we are Chinese and uh, obviously we don't look like uh, voters. You know, at Donald Trump's rallies and these uh, Republican caucuses, almost everybody was a white. You know, so we kind of uh, stood out in the crowd. But somehow we had a, a local friend, and he went up to the uh, desk. There was a person, so he explained who we are, why we were here. We were just observing this uh, Republican caucus. And so he eventually allowed us to go into the room, guided us towards the back of the room. He said, because you are not voting, you could just step back and send that people who want to vote, they can sit in the chairs. So we observed the whole process. One surprise is that in the the textbook, we were taught that during caucuses, you would have uh, supporters of the candidates who would come out and Give a speech explaining why he or she supported a particular candidate, and he would try to make a case why the other people in the room should also support this candidate. But it turned out this did not happen. I think it was a very short process. Each candidate, like starting with Binkley with the alphabetical order, and Binkley, the last name of the candidate, and then you have Haley, and then you have a DeSantis, and then you have Donald Trump. And so for supporters of them came out and made a very short speech. It's clocked three minutes for each of the supporter. So they gave a speech and then there was no discussion. There was no like you know people walking around the room and say, hey Scott, you should give up voting for Ron DeSantis, you know, come over. You know, the future of GOP is Donald Trump, right? There was no such kind of a persuasion walking around. I was a little bit disappointed. I said, you know, the textbook teaches us like this is how a caucus works. Maybe this is how it worked back, say, the 19th century, early 20th century, but this is no longer the case, at least in Iowa. And then people get a piece of paper and then they just hand write their preferred candidate. And then two volunteers collected all these ballots and counted them on the spot. So the whole process, I would say, took about less than an hour. So the whole, the two precincts caucuses ended shortly before eight o'clock in the evening, and the caucuses started at about seven o'clock in the evening. Okay, so that's my observation of the caucuses. So,
0: So that's really interesting. So I guess my textbook education is similar to yours. The whole idea of the caucus was that it would be different than a primary in that people would meet, discuss with each other, potentially persuade others to change their mind. And then you would see what the group's collective views were. This sounds like just about everybody arrived with the, their decision already made up, and the speeches were just sort of a formality before everyone got to voting. Exactly. I was curious, did anybody in any of their speeches or other things you heard while you were in Iowa touch on American foreign policy or U.S.-China relations? Oh, you bet.
1: I, because Donald Trump had a long speech, he spoke for about two hours. And I was really amazed at his energy. And he was kind of like, you know, standing up, you know, erect and very energetic. He mentioned about China, the trade war between the two countries. In fact, he had a brochure uh, distributed at the campaign site. The, the brochure lists seven of his uh, policy priorities. I still have this on my hands right now on my desk. It says, Agenda 47, Big Ideas, Bold Ambitions, and Daring Dreams for Iowa's Future. The first one, Stop China from Owning America. Okay, this is what he printed on the campaign literature. And then I went to uh, Nikki Haley's uh, rally, and there, the moment I stepped in, she was just uh, finishing up a sentence about China. Something like, you know, China... Russia and the Iran are bonding up in an unholy alliance. Okay, this is what she said the, the moment I stepped into the uh, auditorium. And then Ron DeSantis, and he also said very briefly something like, you know, nobody can beat me from keeping China from buying land in Florida. Okay, that's what he said, something to the extent. Because the room was very crowded. We couldn't even find a space to stand. And so, but I have to say that none. During uh, the three rallies and also when we we talked to uh, Republicans, China was never, never the major campaign issue, either for Donald Trump or for Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. I think the two major issues mentioned by all three of them, number one is illegal immigration. Number two is domestic economy, inflation. I think these two issues are the most important. The three candidates all come at these issues from different angles, you know, trying to bragging about what they have done in the past, you know, what they could do in the future. I would say at least during the Iowa caucuses, China was not a salient issue, either for the candidates or for the ordinary Republican voters we talked to. So that sounds
0: like China did come up in their speeches or in some of their literature, but it's still not the key animating issue of their campaigns or what they use to motivate their supporters. Which, you know, when you talk to folks on the ground in China about American politics, they get the impression that China is like a central issue, that it's the issue. And it sounds like it's important as sort of a symbolic issue, at least to prove their strength or their skill. And to say they understand people's economic concerns, but not the main issue. No, no, no.
1: You're right, Scott. I think this is a very widespread misperception here, especially among some of these Chinese social media circle. They try to make the case that China is the central issue for the Republican Party, at least at this stage of the Republican primary, especially in Iowa, I wouldn't say that China featured prominently in the candidates' speeches. So I still think there'll be a lot of discussion
0: about China and American politics over the next several months from both Republicans and Democrats individually and when they're in, in debates. But that's very interesting point about these other issues, which are so salient and probably have a more central role in affecting how people decide which candidate to support. I want to s- ask a little bit about American politics from the perspective of people who live in China. We already touched on the idea that maybe Chinese overestimate how important the relationship is in American politics. But I was just curious about having gone to the rallies, gone to the caucuses, watched American politics. Obviously, the U.S. and China have very, very different political systems, right? And, you know, there's nothing exactly like this at all in contemporary China. But are there ways in which the speakers interact with the audience or other types of language that are used or other types of symbolism that you go, you know, I could see there's some parallels with the way things operate in China or the way they did. Or I'm just trying to see how you compare and contrast
1: what you've seen with Chinese politics. You remember back about 20 years ago, the Carter Center funded a huge project, and then that produced a lot of literature. I think, you you contributed a lot to this too, in one way or another. That is uh, China's village election. Yes. And you see uh, Kevin O'Brien and many others, right? Yes. And so I think, you know, today, of course, there isn't much interest in China's Village election, maybe there's no stone left unturned, right? But I think at the village level, you still see today this kind of a grassroots deliberation and a campaign. At least when I talked to some of the students who came from rural era China, and they told me that, you you still have candidates who would knock on the door and telling them who am I and why do I run for this uh, village committee chairman? And what is my uh, position on some of these major issues? And then, of course, we can, you know, leave aside the rural area, even within my own daily administrative uh, responsibilities as the dean of my school, we still have to do a lot of uh, deliberation, like, you know, my partner, the uh, party secretary of my school, and all the other members of our administrative uh, council, we also need to persuade, we need to deliberate and so I, I would say the grassroots level democracy in China works in a very different way than the caucuses that we went to. So it's, it's different culture and it's different systems. Yours maybe is more open, exciting, but I would not necessarily agree that you would get a better result in terms of policy and outcomes. Well.
0: I suppose we could have a long debate on that. And there's a big political science literature about democracies and the kinds of outcomes that they produce. But certainly there's, you know, the issue of accountability that the process in the United States, it's supposed to give the final accountability of decision-making to the voters, which is supposed to translate into policies which are more representative. But again, we, we could go on for days and weeks on that, not just because we're Americans or Chinese, but just because political scientists debate those things all the time. Having visited the U.S. so often and having just been here and made it through one of the biggest blizzards in a long time and witnessed American politics in action, what's your take on the United States and our trajectory? You know, there's a great deal of, you probably encountered a lot of pessimism and worries and fears that people have that came up in these, these rallies. And you you hear in American politics all the time. Of course, there's another view that America is also going through this huge transition. And for some, it's a renewal process. It's a messy renewal process, but one that could translate into progress over time. Having witnessed all of this, you know, where do you come down on that?
1: My impression of going back to America every time is, First, Scott, I have to be honest that America's infrastructure is really terrible. It's falling apart. The airports, there is no high-speed railways. Like it took me more than five and a half hours to get from Washington DC to New Haven. And you look at the highways which were first built in the 1950s, look at the bridges. I think almost every sensible American would agree that America's infrastructure is falling apart. You need to invest a lot, right? So that's why President Biden is doing this. And also former President Donald Trump also promised to to, to revamp American infrastructure. Because infrastructure is something that you can see easily with your own eyes. But there are other things, I I, I would call this the soft part of America, for example, it's a spirit of innovation. Like when I went to uh, visited the Google campus in Silicon Valley, I went to Stanford University, I went to Northwestern and Emory. And, you know, the campuses are beautiful, of course, but there's something that you could not see with your eyes. That is the innovation at Apple, Google, and the world's. Uh, top scholars at Stanford and at Northwestern Emory. And so America's lead in higher education is still undisputed, right? You look at America's innovation in high technology, China is catching up. I think, again, every sensible person would agree, we still have to spend more time before we can come up with America. And so I think we, we need to take a more balanced view. You look, you just look at America's infrastructure. That's totally very bad. But then you look at other parts of America, not so fancy, something that is not so tangible, but intangible. America's innovation and Americans like the grassroots level ability to govern. And then so, so I think, you know, we need to view America in a more objective way. This is what I often tell people who ask me about the current situation in America. I said, America had been more divided before. Racial tensions used to be even stronger in America in the 1960s. America had a civil war. America had uh, the Great Depression in the 1920s, right? So America had experienced something that is uh, far worse than we see today. But somehow America managed to emerge out of these crises and become the world's superpower and remain so today. So I think it's too early to sound the death toll of American, so-called American empire. Maybe as a political scientist, I'm sure, Scott, you know this term too. That is the so-called democratic resilience. You know, there is something into it. So Don't be misled, I would say, for ordinary observers, don't be misled about this, uh, you know, media hype about the upcoming second civil war in America. I think there's a fair chance you could have a second progressive movement and America would uh, move on. And remember the Chinese word crisis. Scott, you know this? We means challenge. Ji means opportunity. In every crisis, there is an opportunity for rebirth. And to re-energize yourself. Oh, Shetao, this has been a fantastic
0: conversation. I share your hope that a balanced view of the United States would lead us to not be cocky or overconfident, but not so fatalistic, doom and gloom. It's very—I just find it as a sort of a personal principle to not give up. And I think you sometimes you you get the feeling that Americans have are deeply pessimistic. And you find that in many places. And some people have a legitimate right to be. But I appreciate what you're saying about the country as a whole. One thing I take away from this conversation, which I think is important, is although you've offered some perspectives about traveling from China and comparing the U.S. and China, the conversation really doesn't sound like a Chinese perspective on American politics. It just sounds like a scholar's perspective on American politics. And you could have this conversation with many different kinds of people and scholars from many different places about the United States. And much of what you're saying would still ring really true. So it's really impressive how your global education, your commitment to research really shines through. It's remarkable. And I I think that's really useful for an American audience to be reminded of. I mean, people who, who work in academia, in think tanks, know this. But hopefully others listening today will come away with the same conclusion. And so I want to say thank you for being with us on this program, but also thank you for your efforts as a scholar trying to explain and analyze the United States for the global political science community,
1: not just people in China. Thank you, Scott, for having me here. So this is a real pleasure and delight to see you and I do hope to see you again back in Beijing you know well me too so again thank you very much for joining us and look
0: forward to continuing the conversation thanks for listening to China Field Notes stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to great content until next time